generally people seem to be pretty good about being good stewards of open source. You all are a very good example of that. But when supply chain attacks do happen, you hear about them a lot. And it's happening more and more. We have so much more interconnected dependency on open source now that any kinds of problems like this just immediately rise to the top of our attention feed. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, get actionable real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. Raygun delivers modern tooling for customer-centric teams, error monitoring and crash reporting, ship better quality software faster, get code-level insights into the health of your application in real time, and start fixing the errors impacting your end-user's experience. You get real user monitoring, quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues impacting real users in real time, understand exactly how your application performed for every user session and page load. And of course, application performance monitoring gain unrivaled visibility into server-side performance, unlock detailed code-level insights into the root cause of performance issues so you can take action and deliver lightning-fast digital experiences. The next step is to head to raygun.com and start your free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Join the community and Slack with us during the show at jsparty.fm slash community and follow along on Twitter. We're at jspartyfm. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at fastly.com. Hey, hey, let's do this. It is party time, y'all. Hello, party people. Welcome to JS Party. I'm your host this week, Nick. Ahoy, hoy. And uh, welcome. We are very excited. Well, first off, let me introduce my co-panelist here, and that is Chris, a.k.a. Boneskull. How's it going? Hi. Great. <laughs> Super. Woo! Woo! Welcome back. I haven't been on a show with you in a long time, so I'm very excited to, uh, to be here today. I hope to not disappoint you. You never could. <laughs> And with us as well is a JS Party regular for us, Vuka DJ. How's it going for us? How's it going, Nick? It's great to be here. Yeah, welcome. Now, we are talking about a very exciting new project from you called Socket. And you have a couple of guests on as well to talk about that with you. So first off, we have Mick Lysenko. Mick, how's it going? Hi, going pretty good. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, I've just been doing a lot of Node and JavaScript stuff for since like the pretty early days of these things, nice. I did a bunch of like WebGL things and like maybe 10 years ago and uh, done some work with numerical computing. And then previously I was uh, out in China working on some MMORPG browser game thing, which, you know, is still running basically, but now I'm back in America post COVID and working on this. Nice. Very cool. That is like a lot of wildly varying things i was gonna say and then i realized that there's like, more what? stuff it's the abridged version i don't want to talk <laughs> oh about for it. sure but yeah. that's that's like such a cool and unique like segment like yeah i got a blog actually zero fps it's got a bunch of like voxel things and stuff like that oh nice 
Zero FPS. We will add that to the show notes so people can check that out. And then with us as well, we have Brett Combs. Brett, how's it going? Good. Great to be here. Welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a software engineer and open source citizen. I've been doing Node for a long time, since like maybe zero twelve, and contributed to a lot of projects and worked on a lot of uh, little small projects of my own. And uh, yeah, so just uh, kind of uh, living the JavaScript life. So. <laughs> Very cool. Well, yeah, I think it's safe to say that uh, we're all JavaScript fans here. So we're talking about this exciting new project that three of you are working on, uh, which is called Socket. Frost, do you want to take it away and and tell us what Socket is? Yeah, sure. So Socket is uh, a platform that protects your apps from supply chain attacks. And a software supply chain attack is when a JavaScript package gets taken over by a malicious actor. It can be compromised, hijacked. We've also seen maintainers go rogue and sabotage their own packages. And when this happens, the apps that you're building that use open source packages will get compromised as well because they're built on open source dependencies. The average app has something like 90, 95% of the lines of code in the app coming from, you know, that come from open source packages. And so (laughs) the average uh, JavaScript app has thousands and thousands of these um, dependencies. I think last I I, I checked the uh, Hello World for uh, React, you know, all of React apps is like a thousand dependencies. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential for um, bad things to happen if any of those get compromised. And so Socket's sort of an attempt at solving that problem and making it, you know, safer to use open source. Very cool. That is awesome and terrifying. I'm just thinking about that React example. Like, it's so nice that I can easily spin up React and have a hello world immediately, but there's so much happening that I don't know about because I've never really dug into what's actually being pulled down. Mm-hmm. To be fair, that one is particularly egregious. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's actually kind of surprising that like bad things don't happen more often. So, I mean, it is still a relatively rare event, but even like rare events like at scale are actually like very common. Like mm-hmm. at a certain point, it's just even... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that that is a good point. It's generally people seem to be pretty good about being good stewards of open source. You all are a very good example of that. But when when supply chain attacks do happen, ooh, you hear about them a lot. And it's happening more and more because so much like we have so much more interconnected dependency on open source or it seemingly so right now that any kinds of problems like this just immediately rise to the top of our of our attention feed. Yeah, it's like, a, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, we can build apps so much faster because all this great free code is out there. And mm-hmm. for the most part, it's pretty, it feels pretty costless to add dependencies to your app. It helps you get your job done faster. It helps you solve problems that you might not even know how to solve yourself or not want to go and learn how to solve. And that's why you can build stuff so quickly today. That's why a team of like two or three people can can build a really complicated app that would have taken like, you know, teams and teams, you know, dozens of people to build before. So it's, it's really great. We're not against <laughs> using open source. We just think that with the threat of supply chain attacks increasing, we need to take some steps to responsibly use open source in the same way that like, it's become pretty common to scan for vulnerabilities in your open source packages. We think that scanning for supply chain attacks is like a logical next step that the industry and kind of all developers need to start thinking about and implementing in their apps to make sure that they're, you know, that their open source is safe from supply chain attacks. A question I've seen thrown around recently is, is why does this seem to happen in JavaScript land? Why is it like a thing with NPM packages? And I mean, of course, there's a lot of 
speculation as to the reasons why, but why do you think it is? I think it's because there's JavaScript is there's sort of the scale of the JavaScript ecosystem is so much larger than every other ecosystem. Kind of like co- like rare cosmological events, like when you have just the large scale. Like I was saying before, like when you have large mm-hmm. scale numbers of things happening over and over every day, like right. people installing packages every day, things getting published every day. Even if it's a very small probability of somebody introducing one of these vulnerabilities, right. just the sheer number increases the count of those that you see. Also, it's like everyone has some JavaScript in their tech stack, right? So it's like uh, back in the old days, would you bother writing viruses for some obscure Linux that runs on like a toaster? It's not worth it, right? So if you're an attacker, you're obviously going to go after JavaScript because that's where the money is, right? So yeah, we're going to see them there. And then as it gets like more locked down and we figure out how to fix it, they're just going to like the little cockroaches will scurry off to the other places where it's more vulnerable, right? So like we're coming for you next, Maven. We're coming for you, Python. We'll get you. They're just next. That's all it is. We're just the biggest, so we're going to get hit first. Yeah, that is such a good point, though. Like, if you're not a Java developer, you probably won't be using Maven. If you're not a, a Ruby developer, you're probably not using, like, Ruby Gems. But all of those projects are probably using NPM because they, if they touch the web, they probably have some JavaScript in there. That's just, that really highlights, like, wide-ranging and vast the JavaScript landscape really is compared to other languages. The other element to this is that Node introduced recursive or nested dependencies early on in the language. So the community, like that whole like module system essentially scaled like too well, <laughs> like relative to the state of like Python or, or Ruby at the time, like which, you know, had shipped like module systems that still sort of re- required system level dependencies where, you know, you couldn't have two projects installed at the same time on your system just by default, you had to use like extra tooling. And so there, you know, there was sort of an intrinsic sort of um, resistant or not a res- like, you know, there was like uh, some pain there involved. Whereas mm-hmm. in Node, it was just the natural thing. You could just install anything you wanted. There was almost no cost initially. And that's sort of what caused it to scale up to what it is today in, in a sense. So yeah, the average NPM package has 79 dependencies. Uh, <laughs> what I saw in the paper from the uh, earlier in 2021. I find that hard to believe. That seems like a lot. But yeah, that's what the, that's what they found. 79 dependencies. Does seem, seem including obviously. Including transitive dependencies? Yeah, like a total. So they said the average NPM package had 79 uh, total dependencies. Yeah. That seems slow. It <laughs> <laughs> depends on what corners of NPM you Are those for packages yeah. or projects? Because there's also that distinction where projects tend to use a lot of dependencies and packages will use <clears throat> a few less, mm-hmm. but they also multiply in the package. So. Yeah. Is that for just models? I think they were looking at all the packages on NPM and okay. just at, like figuring out how many total dependencies they had. That's wild. But yeah, I mean, that seems high for the part of NPM that I hang out in. Like, mm-hmm. right? but I guess there's like so many sub communities in NPM. And in the React ecosystem, that sounds about right. So. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe they're including dev dependencies too. So. Mm, yeah, they're probably including dev dependencies. Yeah. I can tell you being, I have switched over my Git workflow to exclusively using work trees in a bare repo. And that means that I'm constantly like creating new work trees and then NPM installing and then deleting those work trees. And on my M1 Mac, it takes about five minutes to just delete the node modules. Like it just sits there and hangs. There's so much going into all of that. That's not a very uh, scientific number, but it takes a long time because there's a lot there, which is amazing. So there are a couple of tools out there. Uh, NPM specifically has an audit command that tells you like 
some information about packages that you're using and, you know, it highlights some things in yellow and, and, uh, red and, and tells me and yells at me a lot. And then there's other companies like, um, sneak, I think that I've seen like, you know, on PRs and things like that. Can you tell me how, what does socket do differently or how does socket compare to the existing landscape that's out there? Yeah. So I think it's worth uh, maybe just spending a second distinguishing between vulnerabilities and malware. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, they think, I think like vulnerabilities are when the maintainer of a project makes a mistake in their program, they introduce a security bug and then a security researcher usually finds it and reports it to the maintainer. They get it fixed and then a report is written up and, uh, you know, goes into a database of all the, all the known vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically this database just tells you which versions of packages you ought not to use anymore and, you know, what the safe version is that you should update to. That's basically what stuff like NPM Audit and Sneak are uh, looking at. They're basically looking through your project and making sure that you're not using any of those versions that are known to have problems. You know, and that's great. Everyone should do that. It's useful. You know, you don't want to be running code that, you know, is known to have, have these problems. Now, that's very different than a supply chain attack or malware getting into a package because when one of those gets into a package, it's, you know, it's usually, it's not like a thing that you want to run on your computer for even like a, a moment. <laughs> you can run a package that has a vulnerability um, on your computer and it's, you know, it's going to be fine. You can even deploy it to production if it's like a low severity vulnerability. Um, it probably won't affect you for, for a long time or ever, right? Especially there's a lot of these vulnerabilities that I don't know if anyone, everyone is familiar with uh, regular expression denial of service, yeah. but that's the one that we all see constantly in NPM audit. And, you know, that's, hmm. it's in a lot of stuff and it's, it's bad, but it's not the end of the world. Especially in a CLI. Yeah, especially in a CLI, especially in dev tools, right? So that's why vulnerabilities are good to get rid of, but they're not kind of, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. In fact, you probably have multiple known vulnerabilities that you're ignoring right now in your project and just like hoping to get to later, right? Whereas if you have even a single supply chain attack in your node modules folder, like you probably have, you're going to have a very bad day if that happens, right? You're going to have cryptocurrency miners running on your computer. You're going to have your environment variables being sent off to some random server to an attacker. You're going to have passwords being harvested from different apps on your computer. You're going to have your files being deleted. These are all like attacks we've seen in the last few months that are real supply chain attacks that have happened. So this is a kind of a different threat because it's so much more drastic. You know, what, what happens is so much worse. And it's also a thing where you don't really have much time to like, react to it. So when a package is compromised, if you install it at any point after it's been compromised and before it's been like caught and removed from the NPM registry, then you're, you're, you're owned, right? You have to like, it's bad. You have to kind of clean up your servers. You have to like probably redo your whole computer and assume everything on it has been tainted permanently, <laughs> right? It's not a good, a good place to be. And so you don't want to have a, a very reactive approach where you're kind of like, waiting for these reports to be written and like get added to some database and then the, the you know, the, to check that database, right? That's just too slow of a process. And so you don't need something that actually can like look at the code and figure out what is this code doing? What is it actually, it's, it's behavior gonna actually be? And to warn you if that behavior has changed in some way that's really suspicious or like indicates that it might be a compromise in some way. And then warn you before you run it, right? Before you install it and before you run it on your own laptop or on your production servers. So that's the difference. Socket looks for that and it needs to have, therefore have a proactive approach. It's very different than existing tools. So how does that work in practice? Does Socket act kind of like as the gatekeeper sort of to upgrades or, or what happens there? Yeah, essentially. I mean, so the current thing we provide is a GitHub app that you can install and it watches all changes to the package JSON file, package lock file, yarn lock, whatever you use. 
and it will monitor that. And when a new dependency is added or a dependency is updated, we'll look at it and try to figure out whether it has security issues. So the current thing you can go install on our website just looks for typo squats, which is like one of the number one, I think it's the number one or number two supply chain attack you know, that happens right now, which is basically when somebody registers a name that's like one or two letters off from another popular package and hopes that people accidentally will install it. So we look for that and we'll warn you if you if one of those dependencies about to get into your into your app. And we have a bunch of other things we can detect on our website, which we're now going to work on adding into our GitHub app as well to protect you from other stuff like suddenly an install script is added or suddenly network access is happening or suddenly files are being read and sent to some server, that kind of stuff. So that's coming in the coming weeks and months. Is Socket mainly targeted towards applications and not necessarily libraries? Um, I think it can be used on libraries too. Yeah, anything that has a package JSON file with dependencies in it. So a library can use it to protect itself and make sure that its dependencies are good. So yeah, there's no reason why you couldn't use it there as well. I mean, I certainly want it to be, like I want it on my modules. Like I want to get warnings on my dependabot updates. Like if there's something weird <laughs> about them or like something fishy is added in this new package. So. Yeah. You can kind of think of it like almost like if you're using Dependabot, you should probably be using Socket too, right? Because like if, you know, something's automatically bumping your versions, you also ought to be like automatically checking those versions basically. So like if Dependabot says like update this, you know, then maybe in the future Socket will say like, well, hold on, maybe take a look before you do that. That might not be a good idea. Right. A lot of these uh, supply chain attacks that we've seen though tend to be in like transitive dependencies and you may not have... You know, you may have pinned the, your dependency, but your dependency didn't pin the transitive dependency. And so anybody pulling down your app or your library or whatever is going to get that new version installed, right? And so it's on that user, like, to go and use Socket too, right? It's not, like, my problem anymore because... Or how does that work? Yeah, it's, we scan transitive dependencies. It's the whole dependency tree for all packages and all versions that you have on there. So it's, it'll, it's a holistic, deep scan of all dependencies. Of course, this is assuming that you have a package lock file in place. So if you have a package lock file, mm -hmm. then we'll look at the actual versions that you're installing you know, all the way down the tree. Yeah, if there's just a package JSON file, the best we can do is kind of make a guess about what NPM install will do. But there's always going to be a race condition there because NPM could update between when we do the scan and like when you do the deploy. So for safety purposes, you should just use a package lock file. But if it's not there, you can make a pretty good guess about what's going to happen. So we do the thing as like fallback. In module development though, like even if you have a package lock for your, your development and your tests, like the consumers who are installing you, like uh, like they don't get those guarantees that, you know, your module does, mm -hmm. right? Sorry, that's what I was trying to say. I was... Yeah. Yeah. I think we're still thinking about like that use you, case. You could do NPM shrink wrap, but that can sometimes cause like <laughs> dependency, like exponential bloat, basically. So you got to... As a module to, like to maintainer, I actually, I actually appreciate and practice the package lock free development workflow because in some sense you get a more accurate picture at any given moment, like what your actual consumers are going to be seeing. If you test against a lock file with a module, you actually might miss like... You rerun that test, it's going to work exactly like you ran it that like two weeks ago. But if you ran it without the lock file, like you'd actually see what it's doing today. So I think we're still kind of brainstorming like how to handle that use case. I've thought of ideas like kind of other products have sort of done like almost like a cron test on things just to see like what's mm -hmm. going to happen without the lock file. So maybe there'll be something like that in the future. Yeah, but. I mean, in the future, we can also rerun them, but there's still going to be some delay between like when we detect yeah. the change and then when the analysis is actually done for that. And then like if you deploy before it's done, then you're going to miss that. So 
practically speaking, the only way you could actually be confident that what you're sort of testing and deploying is what's actually running is to have a lock file, right? So if you're consuming and deploying NPM packages, you definitely need a lock file set up, right? And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. It's your choice, right? But you're taking a risk, basically. Yeah, so ultimately, like if, if you're doing, deploying a project to some, some, kind of, some sort of production environment, like that line will, if they have socket installed, they'll get sort of the analysis at that level for the entire tree as well. So that's kind mm-hmm. of the idea at the yeah. moment. Yeah, so just use a log file, man. Like, why do you want to be so weird about this? <laughs> well, I look forward to what you come up with in the future for module authors and library authors for that. Yeah, for modules, it's really, that's the that's the thing. There's kind of a gateway, like a little like gate in front of like projects getting deployed to production. And that's kind of the gate mm-hmm. we're at right now. I'd like to see it move more into the module ecosystem as well. For example, like maybe rather than just reacting to changes in the pull request, like we could open an issue if something weird shows up in your your whole tree. So if a new version of a of a transitive dependency has yeah, been like published. a weekly yeah. or daily report or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. yeah, that would be pretty cool. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Millions of Square sellers use the Square app marketplace to discover and install apps they rely on daily to run their businesses. And the way you get your app there is by becoming a Square app partner. Let me tell you how this works. As a Square app partner, you can offer and monetize your apps directly to Square sellers in the app marketplace to millions of sellers. You can leverage the Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for millions of businesses. And here's the best part. You get to keep 100% of revenue while you grow. Square collects a 0% cut from your sales for the first year or your first 100 Square referred sellers. That way you can focus on building and growing your Square customer base and you get to set your own pricing models. You also get a ton of support from Square. You get access to Square's technical team using Slack. You get insights into the performance of your app on the app marketplace. And of course you get direct access to new product launches. And all this begins at changelog.com square. Again, changelog.com square. So you have this site, socket.dev, and it's really cool that you can go in and just start, you know, using it to search for packages on NPM. And then you can get information. Like one thing that I really like about it is uh, there's a score for different things like supply chain security, quality, maintenance, vulnerabilities, and license score. I love that. It's like a, like not to compare it to Lighthouse, but it is like almost that approach of like kind of gamifying your security, which I I think is really cool and uh, a good way to get people to uh, pay attention to it more (laughs) for better or worse. And so like, I was just curious, like if you could walk through a little bit of what you get when you, when you go look at a package on socket.dev. So like I'm I'm looking at react for example, but like any package, what is it telling you there? So when you go to a package page, you get, you know, those scores you mentioned, they're basically a composite of a bunch of different issues that we look for. Mm -hmm. So we, we do static analysis of the package and look for specific, like what we call issues or, or red flags. They're basically like, things that you want to know about in a package, stuff like the package uses the file system, talks to the network, runs shell commands, you know, maybe the the package looks like a typo squat, 
or it's unmaintained or it's deprecated or it's known malware or it has high number of CVEs or it was refactored recently uh, with a major refactor or you know it doesn't use an open source license. Right. There's all these different issues. We have like 70 plus issues that we look for. Wow. And uh, you can find basically whenever a package has one of those that's really severe, we highlight it right there at the top of the page. So you'll know before you install it and add it to your project. And the cool thing is, like, if you use Socket, you'll even get told if a package has like an install script that's going to run and, and we'll even give you a link directly to the Mick actually implemented that part where you get a link directly to the line uh, where that, you know, where you can see what that install script would do. Oh, that's cool. It's really cool. Yeah. You don't need to like run it, you know, install it and then like be surprised that some install script is running. It's just like really a really basic feature that's super useful to have. So that's the kind of thing. And then we summarize all that into the scores that you see at the top of the page. And those are in beta right now. We're working on improving them, but they basically give you kind of this high level, like kind of summary of like, okay, this package has like a zero on its supply chain security. Like maybe I should like figure out why, like what is it doing <laughs> that's giving it such a low score, right? And maybe maintainers can uh, improve their packages by looking at that. Nice. Yeah, like it's not just like issues too. We also collect like a whole bunch of other statistics and all of this feeds into the score. So like the lighthouse analogy is exactly where we're working from with this stuff, right? So and expect the list of things that we check to get improved over time. The current version is very close to like a minimum viable product to get it up and running and like, you know, bootstrapping it. But yeah. every day we're adding more stuff and it's getting better. So it's going to keep improving in terms of what it can catch. Now, to go back to something earlier with mm -hmm. React, right? It's interesting that on the React page, there's actually a kind of bug with the analysis on that package where it says, like, there's no tests in React, which is actually true. Like, there are no tests in the React NPM package because what it, React does is when they publish their package online, they actually go through and delete a whole bunch of code and, like, do some kind of complicated packaging build step to ship it out to NPM before they do that, which, I mean... You know, like, hey, I guess if they want to do that, that's, you know, their choice, right? But what a lot of people would do if you're looking at, say, like NPM or some other website for inspecting a package, you typically would like to look at the code for that package before you download it and install it. And a lot of people, I think, may naively assume that the code that they see on the GitHub repository is in some way, like, related to the code that you get in your NPM package. But NPM makes no guarantee that these two things are even remotely correlated. Like there's no check that NPM does that the GitHub repository code looks like the package code. Mm -hmm. And currently, like short of just installing the package, there's no easy way within the default like NPM ecosystem to just say, okay, what's going on actually inside this package? So at the moment, Socket does not really look at the GitHub side of things at all, right? We will bring more of that into our analysis in the future. But we're very like sort of focused on what's actually in the package. So all of the scores and all of the data that we have reflects the content of what you would get if you install it. So in the case of React, because they modified the code from GitHub and they deleted all the tests, there's no tests in their package, right? So you probably want to like look around inside them, right? And this is actually a common way for people to like sneak in a vulnerability or something kind of sketchy, like if, you know, you're not looking for it, right? Because they can just say, oh yeah, I have a totally legit package on GitHub, but I could put something like sneaky in it when I send it out to NPM. And then if you install it, you're going to get owned, right? But with Socket, you can actually look at what's actually in the package and see what's in the code and like poke around in there. And we have like contextual links and navigation and you can like look at what it's actually going to do if you were to install the thing on your computer. 
So, you know, if someone's like going to go like AWOL or whatever, like delete tests or whatever, you probably want to know that. So mm -hmm. in the case of React, we can probably in the future for tests, once we're ingesting the GitHub data, say like, oh, they don't have tests in their package, in their NPM file, but we found them in the GitHub repo. So maybe it's okay, but that's not implemented yet. Eventually, I think we will get there, but we're not quite at that stage right now. This is like a, a debate. Should you publish your tests, right? In your experience, what, what percentage would you say are uh, of packages publish their tests versus don't from what i've seen only extremely weird people care about this and delete their tests <laughs> i don't know why it's a big issue actually it's an extreme optimization yeah yeah but it's I, like I, I, what I, if we delete all our white space in our package file too right we shouldn't publish anything that's not middle I mean, <laughs> like i don't know like i guess if you really want to do that but some, like, some people some people also minify their um their files that they publish in their packages i yeah. think like or like you know browserify uh, or webpack the code so that there's only like one file that needs to be required yeah. which can like there's reasons for it to do that yeah i'm not trying to like say that people should never do that like, there's definitely some I, pros to doing that but um but it does definitely make it harder to figure out what's going on in the package yeah because you now open it up and it looks absolutely nothing like what's on github and you're just hoping that like nothing has been snuck in there and so that's where yeah. it really helps to, like actually see like what is the code doing right and this is why you know we have a concept of supply chain risk right like it doesn't mean that they're doing something bad but now it's more likely they could do something bad. And so if they're deleting tests, if they're like minifying their code and doing all this other stuff, you got to be a little sketched out about that. Right. And like maybe, you know, it's fine, but it's like processed food. You know, you get a little bit of like cadmium or nickel contaminants here and there. And like maybe one <laughs> or two is OK, but the cumulative effect <laughs> could give you like terminal brain cancer. All right. The other thing, too, is like um, I think there's things we can do with our scores and with the things we look like, like the, the stuff we show on the package page to maybe encourage better practices not that we want to create like a lot more work for maintainers but there, there are certain like things that best practices that i think like yeah. it would be great if we could make more normal so something like being able to say we took the github code we ran npm install npm build and then we ran npm pack which is what basically simulates a publish and then gives you a tarball and we compared it to what was on npm and we found that it was identical right that's almost like the notion of a reproducible build, right? We could say this package, like you can go get the GitHub code and you can run those commands yourself and you will be able to confirm that that's the code they put on, on NPM. That's a great thing to know about a package, right? Versus some other package that might like require random system libraries to be installed and who knows what versions those are and now the code doesn't even necessarily match and so you don't know that what you're installing and running is actually what you saw on GitHub, right? So stuff like that where probably like 99% of most packages, you know, will be able to pass that test, you know, NPM install, NPM build, NPM pack, right? That produces the same mm -hmm. thing, but some of them aren't going to pass that and we should probably be a little bit more suspicious of those packages, right? And, yep. and encourage them to- a closer look exactly yeah. yeah would they have to have their dependencies pinned in their package lock in order for that to reliably unless they're rendering it into their npm package during build they shouldn't yeah I, that's a good point mm -hmm. he's making the point that i think like mm -hmm. if, if their webpack version is like loose or something then maybe it produces slightly yeah. different output that is yeah. a challenge yeah we but haven't it, built this yet you know it's the other thing too is also going back to what you said we don't want to make more work for maintainers i mean like the thing is doing all that extra packing minifying deleting tests crap i mean like that's actually more work we're trying to convince maintainers to like not do that because it like seems like you're helping but this might be a case where like the cure is worse than the disease you know like just stop making it so complicated you can just publish the damn files right why because everyone's already running this thing through a build step anyway when they're consuming it like you're not 
optimizing anything that's worthwhile here. You're just making more, it's making more fragile basically, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. But people are going to do what they're going to do. And I'm sure people will argue with me about that philosophy. <laughs> but getting back to your original question, like you asked like how many packages have their tests published? Uh, the biggest number that you need to think about there is I think some, someone did, I saw this stat a while ago, so it's out of date, but something like 60% of NPM packages don't even have tests, period, <laughs> like at all. So it's not like they removed them. They just never wrote them. Shocked, I tell you. You're probably going to want to know about before you choose a package. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other like just little piece of tidbit I'd throw out there as well is like back in the early days of Node, there were like a lot of sort of like DX design ideals around how like Node modules should work. And one of the original ideas was like you could actually just go into Node modules and like get init like the dependency and like make contributions out of your dependencies folder. And while we've obviously like gone far away from that, like NPM in some sense has like turned into a much more simple tool, which is just shipping tarballs to your, to your uh, local development or mm -hmm. CI pipeline. But in some sense, it's like, maybe you want to know, like, how is this maintainer treating this tarball? Is it just like a sort of built binary packed thing that they send mm -hmm. to you? Or is it there actually a strong connection with like the original source files? Yeah. So hmm. I think it's not going to be like a serious penalty necessarily without it. It's well, just it, metrics that like, it's kind of like a shortcut to like, like the idea is you look at the socket security report on a particular package and rather than having to like go research these little details, like you are, like you, we all know how to do as ma like developers and maintainers, like we can just kind of answer these questions a little quicker without having you to like dig around in the files tab and like see what it's actually doing. So, yeah. And I can see that like, Removing tests or, or doing like optimizations, like, like removing white space, things like that being like holdouts from like the original days of JavaScript where you do want to, you should be to the browser. So you want to yeah. have as little things as possible, but it's also possible that it's just like accidental in the case of like, I don't know, maybe my, my entire code base is written in TypeScript and then the build command, you know, is just looking at what files, you know, start from main or whatever. And tests are never part of that. And so it just never gets built out. And there really is no connection. Yeah, that's why this stuff needs, is going to be like important to get right and to be really kind of sensitive to. There's so many different workflows people have, and there's so many things mm -hmm. you use npm for. Like you know, we you know originally we had a bug where you know we, we would um, find uh, packages that just had CSS in them, and and we would uh, classify them as like empty packages, packages that you know don't do anything. But it's like no, that actually CSS packages. It's like a thing people use npm for. Mm -hmm. So like okay, uh, you know, so we're discovering all these different things. People, some people publish C code <laughs> to npm and just use it. You know, it's like there's so many things people oh, are using it for. So exotic yeah, work, exotic workflows. Yeah. So we have we have ESM in the browser now, so you can actually publish like a real ESM like artifacts to NPM and the, and then pull them out of NPM with like something like Unpackage or I think Skypack or something and get directly into the browser. In that case, like maybe you would minify it. Maybe the CDN should do it. You know, these are kind of questions yeah. people are still exploring and deciding about. So I still think it's premature optimization. <laughs> Old school. <laughs> there was no browser workflow yeah. out of NPM when Node came out. Like you, it was always assumed that you would essentially download it to node modules and then run it through a bundler first. So as things get stretched and bent, those assumptions start making less sense in some context. So Now, one thing I'm curious about is going back to those, what did you call them? The performance or the security scores? The scores at the top of the page? Yeah, we've just been yeah. calling them securities. They're quality scores or security scores. Quality scores. Okay. Yeah. 
like this is interesting me looking at react and being able to see that but i'm thinking more in terms of like my day-to-day application development is there a way that i could get scores similar to how i get lighthouse scores for my app and how i'm performing it that i could get this like as a total of uh yeah we're working on that right now <laughs> yeah it's almost done awesome yeah so awesome. right now it's like the socket security website it's like a really great research tool when you're looking at individual packages and sort of the next step stepping stone we're, we're working on is generating reports like sort of specifically tailored for a project so awesome. like rather than having to go through individual packages it's like we can just show you everything that's in it from like a high level view and and you know you can, you can sort of makes that research task a little bit easier and we can surface the ones that are interesting rather than you having to find them yourself so that's awesome is your formula public is it public the formula meaning like how each issue affects the ultimate score yeah, i mean how the security score is calculated essentially it's basically like an average of a whole bunch of like little statistics which are collected and the thing is we're always adding more to it so it's probably like, um, like I don't know, like does Lighthouse publish their score, or do people even care that it's public? It's just kind of like it a tells you pretty. I good think, I think, we yeah. can, I think we should publish it. I think it's basically like there's weights attached to each yeah. particular issue or metric. So yeah. it's something like you know, like it's probably helpful to people to understand where the scores come from. It's something we'd like to publish. I think it's just you know we're a small team and we're just trying yeah. to get something working sure. right now. So we just haven't written up as much documentation. It's not stable this. enough that I think it's really worth writing it up. Cause like by the time I'm like, you get done writing it up, it's going to be like, Oh, we got to change it again. Right. So it's not really, <laughs> yeah, the scores, it, th- those aren't stable. We've right been now. saying the scores are in beta because yeah. while the issues we detect are pretty reliable so far, I think the scores like sort of how we weight each thing, it feels like we, there's a little work to go. There's a little bit of work to <laughs> require. Yeah, it's tuning. more or less yeah. just like a weighted average. It takes like some kind of like geo, metric harmonic mean thing of a bunch of different numbers is you know some simple statistical gadget right it's very inspired by lighthouse though so yeah, the idea same, of like same you know, idea. finding these issues and then just sort of like the more of the bad issues you have the more the score goes down that's yeah. kind of like intuitively yeah it's like basically like we have like this thing is like okay this thing is good if it goes better this thing is bad if it goes worse and then you just kind of like feed each of them through some kind of distribution that reweights them and then we take a weighted average of all those and then Sometimes, like, you know, we also, like, feed it through, like, another thing that, like, adjusts it for popularity, right? So it's just, like, yeah, whatever. Just a bunch of, like, random stuff. I don't know. It'll be a, a grab bag. Yeah, yeah, it's a grab bag of, like, random little things. I'll write it up eventually. It's, it's kind of yeah. like every, like, little thing that goes – we tried to capture every little thing that goes through your head as, a as like, a developer when you're yeah. sort of, like – hand assessing in the, in the future and trying to like kind of codify those into like you know I, I think you're giving it too much credit for what it is it's more <laughs> just it's about right yeah. in the future it'll probably be some like statistically normalized thing right where it just looks at a bunch of different metrics we'll calculate the distribution for every package on npm and it'll probably be like a quantile deal something like that for most of the scores that's what'll probably happen and then you can like click on each issue you can see okay i'm in like the top 10 percent of packages here or like this thing is like bottom like percent or whatever. So was that too much information? Yeah. <laughs> We're working in product design. Here. We have like a product of tangents. Yeah. I don't know. You bring three people on who are doing the product development right now, and this is what you're going to get. <laughs> Sorry, we're putting you all to sleep. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you're putting us to sleep at all. It's uh, just you're very passionate about it, which is awesome to hear you working on it and just so excited about about the product and the implications that it can have, which is really great. I mean, honestly, I didn't care what 
the algorithm is. I just wanted to know if it was public. So he can gamify it. <laughs> but no, but just because it's good to have that sort of transparency or else people will be like, well, it's a black box. And then somebody's going to get pissed off about their score and like. How do I improve my score? You know, if you're mad at your score, you can blame me. It's my <laughs> fault that you scored, it, right? So it's like definitely me. It should be clear, like what is negatively impacting the score and actions you can take to basically correct. The reason your version. score is bad yeah. is because I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you can take away from no. this conversation. <laughs> no, Mick. <laughs> This is why we don't let Mick do uh, public interviews. Yeah, there was some, there was like some like, like, I don't know, should we let him on here? And then I'm like, I don't know, guys, do you think this is a good idea? No, no, there's there's actually like, it's just there's bugs, basically, and we're still working on it and it will get better, I think. Right. I will learn to love. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm trying to think of how, as just like, you know, a JS TypeScript developer working on a day-to-day app, how should I approach introducing something like this into the app or, or to my team as uh, something that they should care about? Well, I mean, the easiest thing is to just install the GitHub app. It's kind of okay. the primary thing where, like, if you want to go a step above just doing manual research of individual packages on Socket, you can install this GitHub app, pick which repos you want it to be installed on, or just do all of the repos in your org, and then... It will watch pull requests for changes to the package JSON file and the other associated files, and then leave a comment when it sees typo squats. So, so far, you know, typo squats is what the app does, and uh, it's not a thing that happens super often. But when it does, it is something that you would want to know about because you know it does have quite a lot of uh, potential consequences, and that app will kind of expand with more functionality over time. We're going to probably introduce a socket.yaml file that you can add to your project or to your to a top level repo that would control the you know the settings of socket and kind of what things it alerts on, kind of what it does, what actions it takes. But if you go ahead and add the current app today, it will it will evolve and expand into this more full featured thing over the coming weeks. But um, you know, typo squatting is already it's a thing where if you add it today, probably you're not going to get an alert from it unless you you know you make a mistake, in which case you'll probably be really happy that it sent you an alert. But the kind of stuff that like um, it catches is stuff like, you know, there's a package called browsers list that uh, a lot of people use. I'm guessing you guys have used it or heard of it. Mm-hmm. But there's a common typo people make with that, which is to install browser list, singular browser list. And that package is a completely different thing. It used to do something else. And then now it's been re- it was removed from NPM. And it was a security holding package for a while, which makes me think somebody was doing something nefarious with it. And now if you install it, it just throws an exception uh, instantly. So someone's, I guess, published something else there to kind of throw an exception and tell you that you've made a typo. But anyway, this is a, a package where like, there's no reason to add this to your package JSON file. There's no good that will come from this. And in fact, like we found using Socket, we found a tool, actually Preact, everyone knows Preact. The Preact project was depending upon browser lists and browsers list. They installed both of them, <laughs> right? Probably because someone typoed the first NPM install and then typed it again correctly the second time, right? And forgot to remove the old package. So that's the kind of thing that, that if you install the Socket GitHub app, we can catch. We can tell you, what do you do in installing browser lists? That thing has, that thing only gets 10,000 installs every month. You probably wanted the other one, which gets, you know, 10 million installs every month, right? So that's what, what it can do today. The other thing you can do that's like even like even like less rather than having to convince them, you know, have an app install is just start using the socket.dev website to research, you know, new packages or packages that are giving you a, a, you know, hassling you in your project. You can find some weird stuff in there sometimes like, 
oh, hey, look, the, you know, this thing's like right into the file system, even though it's just like a date, you know, picker or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can use it as like a way to, you know, justify, you know, like we should fork and make this better or like we should just get rid of this. This thing's doing weird stuff. Like um, just a shortcut to doing research within sort of the transient d- dependency tree of various packages. So, and then, yeah, once we have project reports out too, like it, that'll even automate that process a little bit further, but we'll require the app install though. So. Or if I go look at a package on socket.dev, like I'm interested in installing this package. So I go and preemptively just do a quick check. Will it tell me about any transitive dependencies that might be mm-hmm. like trying to do shell access or anything like that? Yeah. Very cool. Okay. You go to the issues tab. There's two tabs in that. One's called package issues. The other is called dependency issues. The package issues are just like the issues mm-hmm. related to the top level package. And then the dependency issues sort of collects all issues it sees through the entire dependency chain. So yeah, oh, cool. and we're going to be working on making this stuff like more accurate and like digestible too. So at the moment, it's still kind of noisy uh, and like things will, hmm. some of them are like not ideal, but I think like it's actually kind of informative and you can still find surprising stuff even in its current state. So it's, and it's getting better. Like uh, there's a lot of things that are like kind of almost working right now that we'll have out there pretty soon. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search that lets you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Liu explaining the problems that Sourcegraph solves for software teams. Yeah, so at a high level, the problems that Sourcegraph solves, it's this problem of, for any given developer, there's kind of two types of code in the world, roughly speaking. There's the code that you wrote and understand, like the back of your hand, and then there's the code that some idiot out there wrote. Or, you know, alternatively, if you know you don't like the term idiot, it's the code that some inscrutable genius wrote and that you're trying to understand. And oftentimes that inscrutable genius is like you from, you know, a year ago. <laughs> and, and you're going back and, and trying to make heads or tails of, of what's going on. And really, Sourcegraph is about making that code that some idiot or inscrutable genius wrote feel more like the code that you wrote and understand kind of intuitively. It's all about helping you grok all the code that's out there, all the code that's in your organization, all the code that is relevant to you in open source, all the code that you need to understand in order to do your job, which is to build the feature, write the new code, fix the bug, etc. All right, learn how Sourcegraph can help your team at info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Again, info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. And by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST, making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to signalwire.com slash video, mention GS Party to receive an extra 5,000 video minutes. Just go to signalwire.com slash video and remember, mention GS Party to get those extra 5,000 video minutes. 
So uh, recently there was a supply chain attack and a popular package, I think it was Node IPC, included a, another package, which is called Peace Not War, and Peace Not War, first, it, I'm not sure, it like started looking at your IP address and like zeroing out your hard drive if you live in Russia, and then it pulled that out, and I think what it does now is like creates a file on your desktop, I don't know. But I'm curious, since this was a big deal, like how did Socket approach that? What was the experience for a Socket user if they had depended upon, say, Node IPC? Well, at this point, we basically only have a GitHub app that detects typo squats, so it wouldn't do anything on Peace Not War. But once we have like a fully functional application that you can install, it would file like a, an alert that basically this thing gained access to a file system at like the top level require. And so it would have alerted on node IPC for this particular thing if it was like actually running. And then you'd get some message like, hey, all of a sudden this module is accessing the file system when you require it, which is probably not what you wanted, right? So it would eventually do that. At this current stage though, we're still trying to like get the application sort of up, you know, bring that up and running. And so it wouldn't catch it like right away. Unless you like actually went to the website and then looked at the package and then you would have seen it. That's cool. Cool to hear that you have a plan to address this because I guarantee that won't be the last one. That's the one that's the most important to address really is like you've been using Mm -hmm. the package for a year and then suddenly a new version comes out and behaves completely differently than it did for the last year. And someone on your team is trying to update to that new version. Maybe it's Dependabot doing it or maybe it's someone just updating all the dependencies or, or maybe somebody deleted the package lock and regenerated it. However, it's getting updated. You want to know when the dependency has has had that drastic of a change in its behavior. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to do is come and leave a comment in that situation on that PR and say, hey, you should know this project is now doing all this weird stuff. And here's the line of code. Here's a link to the line of code where it's doing that if you want to investigate further. Basically a report of every new system call that's like added mm-hmm. like abruptly, essentially. Yeah. And also where they're used to. So in the future, like probably within the next month, we should have like a more fine grained analysis where it'll tell you like, not just like, does it use the file system, but like, where does it use the file system and how does it use it? So it'll tell you like, I mean, we'll eventually have this thing where it'll tell you like, okay, if it's like you call a function with some arguments and then it reads from the file system, that's a very different thing than if it's like you import the module and then all of a sudden it uses the file system. Or if you, if it has like an install script that then does a bunch of stuff with the file system. So it's not just like, does it use the file system, but where does it use it? And when did it start using it? Like, it's much more alarming if a package starts using the file system in like a minor version or a patch version update, right? And it previously didn't, than if it like was just using it from the very beginning and people have been using this module for all time, right? So we'll have that stuff implemented soon and we're going to have an app that can do it. Uh, at the moment, though, you have to just look at the website to check for yourself, basically, to to do that, right? But we're trying to get this thing built as quickly as we can. And like we have all the pieces there. It's just not quite like up yet. We're going as fast as we can. Yeah, I know. If you want to, if you want to help us build this, send us an email and we're looking, we're hiring. You yeah. can join Socket and help build this and then we'll go faster and then we'll have more features to talk about yeah. next time. Yeah. It's like this thing, it kind of like, it sort of announced it and then the demand for this thing was just much greater than was kind of expected. And we're like, oh, we got to go a lot quicker now. Right. So we're kind of in that like scramble to catch up really quick. So when when you're looking at for things like that, like flags that might stick out, can you talk about how maybe that pipeline works a little bit? And like, I don't know how you might do this, but if I mistakenly, you know, 
set up a prepare script or something that installs or runs shell commands and then remove it out. Like, am I forever tainted as like a vulnerable package on socket or how do I clear my name on things like that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, so it's like each analysis is specific to each version and like each package. So, you know, but it does like keep track of like where, like which version introduced this line of code. So we have kind of like an NPM blame as an analogy mm-hmm. blame that tells you like where things actually got added and like when they got added to a package. Nice. And so you can like see like, okay, this version was compromised, but maybe subsequent versions are okay. So yeah. And I think like at the moment, it's sort of just the facts type of stuff, right? It doesn't try to, you know, say like, oh, it was compromised at one point in the past. And, you know, we might report that, but if like the current version looks legit, it's okay. So yeah, that's basically what it is. It's kind of looks at each version sort of in terms of like, like when did things happen in that package basically, right? If the current version doesn't have an install script, then it won't see an install script. So as we've alluded to, NPM is quite popular and there are a lot of packages out there. So how does Socket scale to analyze all of these packages and give you give you that in a timely manner? All right. So I, I can answer this a little bit. Basically, what we've got is a uh, like a kind of in-house, like little homebrew um, sort of function compute type of uh, system, right? Where... Basically, like all of the packages are sort of like unpacked into a giant content addressable data store, right? Which is, you know, like a giant immutable, you could call it like a data lake or a data swamp or whatever. And so like they're, they're kind of <laughs> data a data soup. Is that, is that a term of art, a data swamp? I, I, I think you just made that up. I, I think that's a thing people say, right? But yeah, basically we just take all of like pretty much the entire data set of NPM. And then we just break it down. So we have like the tarballs and then we have the files in the tarballs and then like all of the package JSON things. We break them into this giant immutable data structure, right? That we can then query by just walking hash pointers basically to like search through that. And then we have functions which can read data from this giant data swamp thing and then generate new little blobs that go into this uh, giant immutable data store, right? So we can sort of do searches on this thing by like walking pointers. It's like a, a basically like a tree or like a directed acyclic graph of pointers to blobs of data, right? And uh, like all of the analysis, like running a linter, doing points to analysis, like parsing a file, whatever, each of these things is just reading like a tarball, like sort of like walking through the contents of the tarball to read it out. It all happens like in memory and it's like streamed in over the network and they're all just functions. So like if one of them crashes, you can just rerun it. And they're all also generated on demand. So it's like if you go to a page, it can just say, oh, I need this data, which is this function of this hash. And then it can just walk down all those hashes and get all the data back and then return you the result. And if we've already calculated it, because they're just functions, we can memoize them to optimize the execution. So we just cache the results of them. So the parallelism happens at the level of functions, and we can also memoize them at the level of functions. And so you can even have things where it's like you have these very big, deep, complex function trees, but... You can start calculating it, and if like it crashes halfway through, then the stuff that's already been done, you can keep it, and then it can just restart from that like next time. You know, like it's like basically a user goes to a page, it starts crunching numbers, and then they navigate away. Then we can just cancel that whole task, and then the next time someone comes back in, it'll start calculating the rest, and then the results just stream back in as you're sort of clicking through stuff and walking around. And that's it. It's just we just got functions and we got data, and they're just pure immutable functions. That's all that there is. Right. But all this is computed lazily, right? It's not. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, it's on demand. And so do you have anything that like 
polls or, or sits on a feed and, and waits for new published packages then? Yeah. So the way that works is we basically tail like the, uh, you know, NPM package feed, right? And then you have sort of like a root pointer or whatever, which is like the state of all packages in NPM. And then new packages come in, you build a new block and you throw it back in there, update a pointer and it redubs everything basically. The following NPM part is really important to be able to detect when new stuff gets published mm -hmm. that's sketchy. So I don't know if we currently, are we currently running analysis on the, the Yeah, feed? we currently don't have a thing in real time. I very briefly turned on like a Slack integration and then it just spammed the thing and we're like, okay, we need a better way to manage uh, like inspecting this. So it's at the moment, like we're sort of reading it in in real time as it comes in, but we're not actually looking at it as it comes in in real time, if that makes some sense. So we want to get to a place yeah. where basically like as a package is published, we just do the full analysis on it. And then if we find that that publish was particularly suspicious, we can take an action. Like, for example, when we notice that a package suddenly has all this, you know, all these changes mm -hmm. made to it, and it's maybe a new maintainer, maybe, you know, it's a, something about it, like the whole, the collective, yeah. the collective uh, publish just like looks like something's wrong, then we can um, mm -hmm. take an action. So it might start off by being just like, we put it on a page that's like suspicious publishes, right? Or we throw it on a Twitter feed, or we send it to a Slack channel that we look at. <laughs> but we want to eventually like take some actions based on that, such as like, having a human, a security expert actually look at it and say, oh, hey, this is actually a really bad publish. Let's yeah. like go get NPM to take it down right now. We'll tell them about it, we'll report it to NPM and we'll block it for anyone who has the GitHub app installed so that they won't accidentally install this malware, even if NPM still hasn't taken it down yet because sometimes they take a few days yeah. to, to get back to you. Yeah, so, but at the moment, like all of our analysis are kind of developed, like generated on demand. So like if the thing is like a new package in the feed, we don't, you know, aggressively alert NPM yet because we just don't have people to look at and review all those things at this point. But if you happen to be like running, you know, our current, we have like a temporary version of the GitHub app, but when this is actually like live, it will run the analysis on your packages as you like to commit. So if you're using Socket and you have like a bad package in your package JSON file, you will definitely get the alert in a timely fashion, right? But it's like, you probably don't care about all the new stuff coming into the NPM feed because you're not using those packages. So from the user perspective, or like in terms of any question you can ask, the data will be there when you ask that question. It's just like, do we want to start aggressively like looking at the new stuff that's coming in and having people like reviewing it? We will do that. It's just when we have enough people basically to do that. Or like we've only been doing this for like, you know, a couple of months now, so we just don't have enough people yet. <laughs> it would be cool to eventually see some sort of hook for a, like a dev environment, um, maybe, I don't know, a pre-commit hook or something. Mm -hmm. That does the analysis before you, I don't know, maybe it's a pre-push. I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to have. So you will right. you will have that. We also talked about maybe doing like a, like an NPM proxy or like a CLI replacement that like also d does a little check before you install stuff because it's out there. You don't, even if it, we catch it at the PR layer, like you're still like, you know, mm -hmm. doing it on your dev machine, which has SSH keys and whatever else on it. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots to build. Those are ideas. Those aren't there yet, but yeah, yeah. like those are like, we're not yeah. sure. Yeah. We're, we're trying to like basically attack the things that are going to provide right. the biggest amount of value first and then we'll just. Right. And the other reason we do this stuff lazily too is because like, as I you know, said multiple times and apologize for, and I know I'm joking a little bit, right. But it's like, we're, we are working on this thing and we're adding new stuff like mm -hmm. every day, multiple times a day. So we're like constantly adding new things and we're improving stuff. And when we do that, it's like we can't just stop the world and like reanalyze NPM. So the other big advantage <laughs> of doing everything lazily is that we can ship code so much faster, right? Like we can just push a new analysis and then, you know, like, okay, the next time you check it, it'll update, right? And it'll like, whenever you look at it, it's always going to be the most recent thing. 
So that's why we do it that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Like that you have that that infrastructure in place to lazily reanalyze things as you needed and as you're adding new features, which mm-hmm. I was gonna like end the show by like asking, you know, what's next or what what's something cool? But we have spent the entire show talking about <laughs> all of these amazing things that are coming that I'm so excited for. It really does seem like this could become like a super invaluable piece of your development workflow for everyone, for package maintainers down to people just working on everyday apps for companies. It could be so important to just use this as like a starting point for everything. Every time you add a new package, check socket first. Did I check socket? Did did the socket bot come back and tell me anything? Like there's, it's just really cool. Yeah. And yeah, really awesome. Yeah. And even though like there are, you know, like things are not perfect yet, I still think that what we have now is actually mm-hmm. pretty dang useful because if there's like an mm-hmm. issue, it's often like a starting point for asking a question and you can click those issues. And the key thing is we do have the actual data there, right? Like we're one of the, I think our presentation of the data inside NPM packages is currently the best you can find anywhere on the net. So if you want to go, you know, like look around at like what's going on inside a package, you get like the issues, but they're kind of more just like a hint of like something to take a look at, but then you can take a look at it and you can navigate through the files. You can click links and you can see the actual code that's in that package and all of its dependencies all linked together. So right now, like that works and it's pretty great. And I think, you know, it's just a fun website to click around and play with. And we're soon going to have an app that's going to make this like a hundred times more useful. By the way, the, the thing mixed referencing is really cool. Like you can actually, when you're going into a package and looking at its files, you can click, it's sort of like a, what VS Code can let you do, but it works across NPM packages. So you can click on like a package name and it'll jump you to, you know, the files in that package. It'll take you to the main file, but it'll do it for the right version too. It's not take, it'll take you to the oh, specific cool. version. Yeah. So it's like, you can actually kind of follow the tree of packages all on the website. Um, it's really neat. Nice. Yeah. And like, if you try to do this, like there's nothing that really supports that kind of workflow besides socket right now, which I think is kind of cool. Right. And I mean, like I personally find it very useful to just click around in the files on packages. Right. And thanks for all the kind uh, words, Nick, and the feedback, you know, the excitement. We're going to try to make it as good as we can and and make it something that's Mm -hmm. really useful to people and make it live up to all all of your your hopes and dreams, hopefully. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think you're off off to a great start. And there's a lot here and a lot of potential coming. So I'm I'm very excited to to keep going, keep looking at it and to uh, make it a a regular part of my flow for sure. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I do want to mention that, and we, we've kind of alluded it, to it throughout the show, but for us was on the Changelog podcast talking about Socket in more depth and at uh, different angles. So we'll definitely have a link to that show in the show notes as well. And thank you so much for us, Mick and Brett for coming on. And uh, thank you, Chris, for being here as well. And we will see you next time. Bye. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. All right, that is our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't subscribed yet, now is the time. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you dig this show, check out our other pods, such as The Changelog. We have an episode in the feed with Brian Kernahan, who's pretty much a living legend. Here's a sampler. What has changed over the last 50 years or so is just astonishing when you think about it. It's sort of pretty much everything has changed. You know, when I started programming, let's call it in 1965 or something like that, I used Fortran and we used punch cards. Remember punch cards? You guys have never seen punch cards. Mm -hmm. Sorry. (laughs) I've seen a picture of a punch card. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and that summer I spent at MIT in 1966 was a revelation because they had timeshare. Continue listening to that conversation at changelog.fm slash 484. Thanks once again to our partners at Fastly for helping us deliver our shows all around the world, to Breakmaster Cylinder for keeping our beats farm fresh and glitching, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up on the pod, K-Ball and I digest some headlines and play our second ever game of Head Lies. Stay tuned for that. We'll have it ready for you next week. If you're writing your first NPM package, I highly recommend keeping it.